Absolute. And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Daryl Gregory on the Coot Street Podcast. And we're back. And De- Welcome back, Daryl. You haven't been here for a couple of years, I think, at this point. I Well, I don't know if I've ever been on the Coot Street Podcast solo, except for when you guys were doing the pandemic, like, let's yeah. check in for 10 minutes. All right, right. yeah. And then I sat in with Liza with one for uh, uh, was that a year end summary thing? Yeah, year end yeah. summary. Yeah, that yeah. was the last time you were there. So. Back when you were briefly relevant. So we had. To <laughs> <laughs> so how are you? How's life treating you? No, life is good. I am living the vaccinated lifestyle, the Levita Vaxa. I'm. I'm. Um, uh, I was calling it for a while. I was like, I'm vaccinated. I got my when I got my second shot. I just felt like. Uh, I could suddenly travel to see my my mom. I could see relatives. I'm now coffee shops are opening up. So all during the pandemic, I was sort of addicted to uh, writing in coffee shops because it forced me to put on pants uh, and see <laughs> human beings. Because otherwise, the entire day would pass, and I I was like, oh wait, I'm in my pajamas and it's and it's dinner time. So uh, no, so I've I've got a coffee shop back that I can go to. It's kind of great. I'm going to go to my daughter's house in D.C. tomorrow. Uh, where it's almost as hot as it is in Chicago right now, Gary. <laughs> it's about yeah, it was ninety-two or three here today. I think. Uh, yeah, no, like life, is, life is good. Oh, that is great. Good to hear. And you've been busy, busy, busy man. Been working. Yeah, and le- well, like we talked about, I, I, I'm, uh, I look briefly prolific because um, of an accident of the pipeline. All the stuff I was working on during the pandemic sort of get arranged to come out. So, album of Dr. Moreau was out May eighteenth. And then uh, there's another novel coming out in August. Uh, and then I will disappear like a, like a cicada. <laughs> um, and I will, I will restart my, my, my brood uh, somewhere below ground and then reemerge sometime <laughs> later. Yeah, but there's also other stuff happening. You know. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, since you are, have emerged cicada-like, the reason ostensibly we're here to talk, the thing that, that you know, sort of nudged us together is the album of Dr. Moreau which is a new novella from you that is out in the world from Tor.com. Edited by Jonathan Strong, like yes. the man himself. So this is, <laughs> uh, yeah, this, so there's this a is- reason why he pulled some strings for me to get onto this podcast. So, that, so, th- so this novella was originally 700 pages, and then Jonathan got hold of it? <laughs> yeah, the editing was brutal. I, I pictured, I, I, had, I tracked my protagonist uh, from Fetus, uh, all the way to their deaths at 96. And he was like, no, no, we're just going to concentrate on uh, one 24-hour period. And it was, it, was, it was a tough editing job. But we got there in the end. But we got there. Okay, well, I guess okay, before we ahead. start, because we don't do this enough since we're here to talk about a thing, and then we'll go to your question, Gary. Okay. So what's the elevator pitch to readers for the album of Dr. Moreau? Uh, the elevator pitch uh, is different than what I pitched to you, Jonathan, when I first 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 uh, pitched it to you uh but it's basically uh what if genetic animal uh human hybrids uh genetically engineered uh hybrids were uh discovered in uh, the late 1990s um and of course they become a boy band um, of course of course uh, it's the only obvious move really at that point and then uh I did, and then it becomes a locked room for some inexplicable reason. It becomes a locked room murder mystery in Las Vegas on the last night of their big concert tour where their manager, Dr. M, uh, is found uh, clawed to death. And the boys are all suspects. 
and Lucia Delgado, a Las Vegas detective, and her punning sidekick, uh, uh, Detective Banks, uh, go on the job, and they have 24 hours before the Fish and Wildlife Service takes the case away from them. And uh, so they have to solve the mystery in that 24 hours. And so, yeah, it's basically a mashup of I, well, I pitched it. I originally pitched it to Jonathan. I said, "What if H.G. Wells and Agatha Christie did a lot of cocaine while watching this is Final <laughs> Tap?" That was, the, that was the original pitch. Um, but I really got into this idea of uh, of doing everything, like doing all genres at once. So making it actually real science fiction, making it actually a real locker room murder mystery, and following most of the rules of a locker room murder mystery. Um, and having the solution, it was really important for me that the solution of the mystery, mm. it relates to the science fiction premise. So it has to be a true science fiction um, murder. It can't mm. be the solution be something like, well, they did it for the money. It mm. needs to be part of the premise to to make all the things come together. Oh, and it has to, also has to be a ridiculous comedy and make you cry <laughs> at the end. I remember telling Jack, my friend Jack Skilling said uh, – I said, here's what I want to do. And I list out all the different things I want to do <laughs> in the novella. He says, I don't think that's going to work. He goes, well, maybe you could make it work, but that seems like too much for a novella. And, and I said, that's exactly the point. It's too much, uh, but we're going to make it fit. So. Well, so it started out with, um, with Wells. It's, it started out with science fiction and a mystery. The boy band, uh, there aren't a lot of science fiction novellas about boy bands, I don't think. It's not a subgenre yet. Um, I mean, you may be starting something here. Who knows? I, I, I oh, just, it's going to be huge, Gary. <laughs> I, I just saw, who was it, BKP or what, what, the latest superstar? Uh, yeah, BTS, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just saw them the other night. And I thought, I could see them as animals. Remember, the, <laughs> remember, remember, well, wait a minute. Remember the animals back in the 60s? I mean, come on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, there are so many, there are so many antecedents for this. I mean, there's the there's the monkeys. Um, yeah. In Chicago, I grew up watching the show, this weird show called The Banana Splits, which they seem to play music and also be animals. Um, so it's it's all coming back around for me. Everybody at home, please Google the banana splits. F- but not the horror movie home. version. Yeah. Not the horror yeah. movie. The kids' TV show. Oh, and the horror movie, uh, which I've not seen, is supposed to be fantastic, but it's based on. How but it is not the same as one banana, two banana, three banana, four. No. Oh, it's not. Oh, uh, it's the same characters, but it's done as an actual ho- sort of slasher horror movie. That sounds which is very. A- it actually sounds like a weird cousin of Moreau. Right. One thing I, I suspect this might be where Gary's going. Which where did you find the beginning of this, and why of all things link it to? Uh, the Island of Do- Dr. Moreau, something which seems for some odd reason right now to be very timely. There are other stories bubbling around. We heard that Sylvia Miranda Garcia is writing a uh, Moreau-related story and everything else. What do you think, what was it about Moreau particularly? Well, I don't know. You know, it's sort of like steam engine time when everybody has the same idea at the same time uh, or everyone makes a movie about an asteroid crashing into the earth. Because I think at Gary's review, he pointed out, I mean, uh, Dora Goss, Theodore Goss has um, the Puma Woman, I think is right, one, of her, character, one of her characters. Yeah. Um, I think it's, you know, it's the miracle of public domain. Uh, for, and I don't know why. There's another, there's a, there's a graphic novel coming out soon uh, uh, based on Moreau. I don't know. You, you know, the thing is you start fishing around for these tropes that are in the air. And I think it started really as a pun. 
So no. I'm, I'm, I'm driving between um, the, the uh, there's a, there was a book festival in Austin and I think it was uh, the nebulas in San Antonio. Um, and I'm driving between those with my friend, David, uh, Dave justice. And I said, you know, I've always wanted to do a, do a story just called the album of Dr. Moreau. And then we just started riffing on it um, and doing comedy about it. And it was really going to be more like a heavy metal band. And then they would do um, at that time, there was a Motley Crue uh, uh, memoir and a documentary. And we're like, oh, okay. So they'll just do gross stuff and it could be an entire novel of them doing terrible things. Um, but, it, but at some point I was, I got amused by the fact of, um, I was going to be a cool parent for my, my children. And, mm -hmm. and I was determined that when my daughter started listening to music, I was going to support whatever she got into, uh, country music, uh, hip hop, whatever. I was going to be the cool dad. And then she picked bubblegum pop. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to listen to the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC endlessly. In the, as she demanded it in the car, it was in the house all the time. It kind of drove me insane. Um, and so it just seemed like it's funny because, I mean, the thing about these, these boy bands is they all have to have distinct personalities and they're labeled the cute one, the shy one, the romantic one. Right. And you see that's still happening with BTS right now. They're labeled according to their personality traits. And I thought, okay, well, this fits and it's funnier um, uh, that they have all these teen fans and that they'd be a boy band. And, uh, I don't know. You know, it's like sometimes you get a bad idea and then you just keep elaborating on it until it becomes a book. <laughs> well, on the other hand, <laughs> there's a, it's 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 an idea which you've had variations of before because you've had distorted versions of humanity. I'm, I'm thinking of the devil's alphabet, for example, uh, or for that matter, we are all completely fine. You're dealing with carved up, rearranged people for for a good portion of your career. <laughs> You know, you write what you love, Gary. Uh, <laughs> no, it's true. It, you know, um, it's funny. And the next book in August is, is a straight out Appalachian horror novel. Um, I, it's weird. I'm not uh, embraced by the horror crowd at, at all. I don't think they know I exist. But a lot of my stuff is all about the horror tropes. Um, yeah. I just can't quite. Um, um, I was talking to a friend of mine talking about how I'm really attracted to anti-horror, which is like. It's when you're presented with the horrible truth of something, uh, instead of withdrawing, you you push into it into empathy, and you're mm -hmm. like, and so you take the monster side, you know, as much as you can. And I'm really I'm really fascinated by that. Um, and and I don't know why. I mean, maybe it's just that human bodies are so weird. But I, yeah, you're right. I keep coming back to this this thing, and I'm not sure whether I should question it because it may shut off the tap, or I just keep writing this stuff. I, 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 <laughs> I, I wonder about uh, the horror because the, it's a lot. The backstory of backstory, if I wanted to say the backstory, the backstory of the uh, Doctor Moreau kids is pretty grim. I mean, it's 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 pretty much right. a horror story by itself, and it's grim in the same way that the original Island of Doctor Moreau is. Um, right. But I, I I think you're right. I think a lot of uh, as far as I can tell, uh, horror readers don't necessarily count the H.G. Wells original among among the kind of horror pantheon the way they do uh, Dracula and Frankenstein and that sort of thing, even though all the movies have been made, have been horror movies. Right. And, and he, I mean, Wells was, you know, he considered himself a social activist first and a journalist. Mm -hmm. um, he began distancing himself later from his actual fiction. But I mean, he was protesting 
you know, vivisection, the right. live cutting up of animals. And, and he wanted to get across the horror of that. So that's why there's all this language about the house of pain and carving, carving up these animals and they're in real pain. Um, so I knew, and this is the thing that's always works with comedy is that like, it just works better if right underneath the surface, there's these terrible things that have happened. Um, it seems to, I don't know, like writing that edge between comedy and horror and you get a little peek underneath the covers and then you come back up. And especially when you have self-aware characters, they can peek under the covers and go, oh yeah, that that is really horrible. Why don't we make a joke about that? And then they come back up. I I like the self-awareness of it, um, which, which you hope that if you're ever in a real horror story, a horror, you find yourself inside a horror movie, you would find yourself, you know, uh, like, like in a Wes Craven movie, commenting upon the rules and knowing what you shouldn't be doing and that you shouldn't split up and go try to figure out why the yeah. power is cut at the camp. I agree. I think Wes Craven had, had a sense of humor, which a lot of his imitators don't. But I would think a challenge for a writer when you're dealing with that, you're dealing with the locked room mystery, you're dealing with a, a kind of hotel room set, a hotel setting, which is also a screwball comedy uh, set. <laughs> yeah. So you've got people running in and out of rooms and you've got you know, people surreptitiously <laughs> sleeping with the boss's wife and so forth. How do you control how do you control the tone? Because at some points it gets very dark. You're right at the end, it gets very touching. The whole thing is framed in a, a kind of sweet story. Um and and you do somehow have to jerk the reader back and forth between comedy, absurdity, a uh, little bit of little bit of Ionesco's rhinoceros in there, I thought, for a while. Uh, and as a theater major, I, I applaud that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That is the whole trick. Go no, ahead. you do worry about that. I mean, um, I I uh, I wrote an essay for this uh, uh, Clarion West um, sort of benefit anthology, this pocket workshop, and my essay was was called um, "Congratulations on Learning How to Juggle." Now get on the unicycle, because your <laughs> whole your whole job as a writer, unless you're going to plateau and just start cranking out the same stories year after year. And you can make a great career at that. We all know people who've made a tremendous career out of just writing the same book over and over again. Um, but your job as a writer is to always try to uh, try to make your reach exceed your grasp, is that, if I'm saying that right. And you're, so it's like part of the fun of it is, well, can I make all this stuff work? And it may mm-hmm. fail you know, terribly. But the real trick for the tone thing for me, the 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 hack, if you will, that mm-hmm. I have for it is I always make sure that from the perspective of what a character is, whether they're a zombie or a, a, an elephant boy or whatever they are, is that psychologically you're taking them at face value. You're taking their desires and needs as real as they're, they may be extreme, but mm-hmm. what they want is relatable and you can see what they want and they're trying to, you know, you're not making fun of them. The, the comedy comes from seeing it from their point of view and everybody else's reactions around mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So if you can get people to believe in an elephant boy, even if it's, even if they're laughing at the jokes about the elephant in the room, and then you get them to sort of consider what it's like from their point of view, even for a little bit, I mean, they will, readers will follow you through the whiplash. If you ground it first, or you at least convince them that these are real people with with real needs, even if it's ridiculous. 
when did you feel like you'd found the, the, found the voice in the story? I mean, you sat down with a year and a half ago to start this. And I mean, it is, I mean, we've talked, you've talked about it being a locker room mystery about it being a science fiction murders story about it being a boy band story, but it strikes me as at least as much or more so to be a story of character. It's the character at the top that builds all the story. Everything else is down, down beneath that. And, and as we go through the points of view, because the story is structured, so it goes through the points of view of the, the various boys, the wild boys in the band, and the and Luis Delgado, the detective. So when did you, where did you start, and when did you feel like you'd found the voice for it? No, that's that's an excellent point because if somebody's listening so far, they're going to feel like it's a very top down exercise where it's like, oh, you wanted. X plus Y, and then <clears throat> that's that's the way it's built. But you're right. For me, the only hook was um, the starting hook was the characters and the way I and their voices and where their comedy comes from, which had to be from their personalities. And each of them had to one have their own voice and their own way of being funny in the text, and they had to interact well together. And you had to get this kind of feeling that they've been trapped on a bus together for too many years. They've been brothers before that. And that kind of like poking at each other, brothers trapped together kind of feel to it. So for me, um, the trick was to not start writing too quickly. I filled up a journal um, writing about them and writing dialogue to figure out what they sounded like. And so for me, there's in my um, physical actual pen and ink journal, there's all these pages of just them talking and jamming and making jokes and poking at each other. And once I figured out how they could talk to each other, then I could go. Then, then it was just mm -hmm. plot. Like I'm very good at plot at arranging story elements to sort of make it work out if I know where the ending is. Um, but, but the uh, fishing around was all voice. Were you, were you trying to work in, it seemed to me that you were, although I don't know enough about animal behavior. I mean, you've got somebody who's an ocelot, a bat, you mentioned the elephant, <laughs> um, pangolin. I mean, so how does being a pangolin affect somebody's character? And I had to, if, if it hadn't been for the uh, coronavirus thing being blamed on pangolins, right. I would have known what a pangolin was. But I just, I, I want to give voice to the pangolin community right now. <laughs> pangolins and bats have been so maligned by by the COVID outbreak. Well, the bat, the, the bat character comes across as as bat like and the elephant character certainly comes across as elephant like but i i couldn't tell you what what was real about ocelots and pangolins because i didn't know enough about them so i feel like i've learned some natural history from you well i'm glad to have had that service well you know i mean part of the thing is is like you're you're fishing through all the animals and you're and you're trying to figure out who's going to be in the band or who's not and then some things just resonate and pangolin is a funny word Bonobo is a funny word. Um, <laughs> and pangolins, there was this documentary on YouTube where this woman in um, uh, Tasmania, like uh, where was she raising this? Anyway, she rescued this, this pangolin and had it living in her house. And it's the best YouTube video because he's waddling around <laughs> and he evidently he stinks a lot. And he makes a, a fort out of the cushions in her couch every night. Like she puts the cushions on every morning by night. He's made an entire fort to do a fake cave that he can burrow into. And I'm like, okay, so my guy is going to be that really shy pangolin. Ah, okay. Um, hiding beneath the covers. And he doesn't, he, he doesn't want to be part of the band really, but he's the, you know, he's the lyricist and, um, and he would be eating grubs. Um, and, so, so you just started collecting, like you see stuff like this, and you start reading about them. Ah. They're basically pangolin for people out there. 
uh, pangolin basically looks like an armadillo um, with slightly different armor. Um, and they like to burrow any grubs and they're, they're very shy and they're kind of nearsighted and very friendly. So I'm like, okay, so that sets a character for you. It's like <laughs> when an actor gets dressed in a very specific costume, it's like you put on, you put in the costume, yeah. you put on the top hat and you begin to feel a little different. You're like, Oh, I can see how this guy sees the world. And, um, yeah. And so you start doing that like an ocelot first came from this there's this animated show called archer and they have a couple of great episodes with an ocelot <laughs> which is just a kind of uh wild cat um that's sort of medium-sized and will claw you to pieces but they're so adorable um so i'm like okay so rather than just saying cat dog you know picking all the basics i'm like why not just have it be more random and and funnier and uh but i get more questions on the pangolin than anything uh i imagine yeah. <laughs> well my nobles are just funny because they they i'm a favor of any species that ha- uses genital rubbing as an icebreaker so i'm like <laughs> I'm a, i've always been a big bonobo fan <laughs> and and why las vegas and why the detective that you ended up with right so yeah at some point when you've got your basics down um, I went to Clarion years and years ago and, um, Samuel R. Delaney, Chip Delaney was one of my teachers and he was, he taught us this technique, which is, you know, if you've got a side character, if you've got a character, what happens to the character if you flip them, flip their gender, their social class, like what happens to your story if you do that? Mm-hmm. So you think of a detective character and I go right to Hercule Poirot or something. And I'm like, no, there's a lot of testosterone in this story. There's five boys in the band. Right. Um, there's, cat the female roadie um and there's some other people i'm like no i think i think luce delgado um the detective should be female and she'll have a daughter who's a super fan who will stand in for my daughter who was a super fan of the backstreet boys when she was 10 so i'm like okay so that's i know how to write that girl um and so that's how that's how luce becomes the detective um and we're we're in las vegas just because it seemed like there were two things going on one i knew it had i knew the original pitch to, for the story to Jonathan was it was going to be stretched out more over time. It was almost going to be a um, uh, a sort of yeah. take on the podcast of Serial where they go back and they reconstruct mm-hmm. a crime uh, through episodes. And the main character who was investigating was going to be the woman who runs this podcast. Um, but then I was like, wait, this is taking too long to ramp up and get get information out. And it's and, it, and the, the drama began to leak out of it. Um, and so. I wrote to I wrote to Jonathan and said, "Is it okay if I do this?" And and, you're, and Jonathan was like, "Whatever makes the story work, just go mm-hmm. go right." Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I I knew I wanted I was a big fan of those Agatha Christie mysteries like Murder on the Orient Express and Death in the Nile, right. where they put everybody in an enclosed space right. and everybody's forced to interact. And like you said, like in a like in a mm-hmm. French farce or something, you got people running around in the hallways. Right. It's I like that idea of like let's do a lockdown and let's do 24 hours. Let's set a ticking clock. You know, it's a writer hack that that just makes readers sort of pay attention, knowing that something's going to be solved mm-hmm. in 24 hours. Right. In Murder on the Orient Express, you know, they've got a there's snow blocking the tracks, and whenever they clear the tracks, the murder has to be finished before then because the murder's going to yeah. get away. So. It's all these sort of weird constraints of murder mysteries and the compression of the novella. Because the other thing I was thinking about was, okay, you've got 175 pages. Where where can you get the most bang for your buck in those 170 pages? And it was clearly like 
the book just got better when the boys were compressed and spent more time together. And, mm -hmm. and also I wanted each of them to have sort of a solo. So the one reason it's organized like a, like an album with album tracks is I, I deliberately wanted um, they'd all be trapped together. And then the detective would get a chance to interview each one of them and they get to basically sing their area, mm -hmm. their aria. And, and we get to meet each one of them and then we'll do the final reveal. I wanted to do one of those classic, like I, so here's why I've gathered you all together here today. Yeah. I, I wanted all the tropes. I wanted everything. <laughs> on the table. Well, I think one of the things that makes, one of the things that makes that work is, is the very economy of, of, as you say, a novella length, because when you mention murder on the Orient Expresser, Death on this, those novels are not much longer than the uh, album of Dr. Moreau, uh, because everything is cut down to uh, what is needed in terms of the backgrounds of the characters. Um, and, and, and I think that's what I think one of the things I liked about it most is that it was very efficient, even though any aspect of this could have been blown up. We could have had a hundred pages about the horrible times on the barge, for example. Um, and that, that would have overweighted it toward a grim kind of uh, abuse story. Right. Um, and you could have probably spent more time on the uh, mystery side, the investigation side of it. But you didn't want too much of that because basically you're, you've got constraints. So, so the thing that I think maybe I, I admire most about it, and I admire most about the novellas I like best, is simply the economy. You're not wasting any space here. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can't. You have no time. And, and I, you know, with a short story, you have to be even more elliptical. So the, the novella is this sweet spot where you can actually have a complete story with, with background, but you can't go too far, too far afield. You lose yeah. people. You just don't have the time to do it. And it's such a great freedom for the writer to not have to explain everything. You don't yeah. have to do those hundred pages on the barge. You can do a couple key moments and readers will fill all that in for you. Exactly. I mean, one of the things that I've been complaining about for years now is uh, the, the, the enormous special effects movies that are coming out, not just the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but Godzilla vs. Kong and that sort of thing. If you actually take the plots of those, if you take the scenes in those that advance the plot, you end up with a 27-minute Twilight Zone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I just watched a show on Netflix. I was, I'm, a, I'm a comic book guy, and so I was like, this show got mediocre reviews, but I, I, I decided I'm going to watch Jupiter's Legacy on Netflix. I've heard about that. And um, they slow the pace down so much with endless conversations in bars about everybody's mm -hmm. feelings. And they pro these people process everything more than like a, like a squad of therapists. Like every single thing that happens, they will talk it to death. And um, I kind of like not having to do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I like I, – I like moving things along. If there's a, there's especially when you're trying to write something with velocity. I don't know. There's just a joy in like we're we're moving on. See, you touch on something which absolutely baffles me in crime fiction, right? But and even in some some bestseller thrillers and in inverted commas, and that is generally these days crime and thriller novels are quite long. Right. I mean, you look, look at look at a Lee Child book, which is four or five hundred pages. I just read one of those a while ago the first time, and they've got so much junk in them that actually diminishes that sense of uh, timing, pace, intensity. They're stretching it out with other things, and I kind of get sort of why up to a point 
but it also it, it loses something. I mean, with Moreau, with uh, something at that that kind of a length, I feel what you get is you get the intense heart of it, and because it's so tight, you get intensity, you get adrenaline, you get that sort of sense of I'm going to flick through this and I'm I, I'm going to find out what happens next, as opposed to endless digression. Right. Well, and those thrillers. Well, one thing I will say about the other thing about novella because they're tight a reader can hold most of it in their head at one time. Mm, yeah. You know, you don't lose, you don't forget about a character who showed up on page 100 and then disappeared and comes up back on page 500. You're like, who, who is this guy? Um, he was in Westeros. You remember he was on a ship. All right. All right. right. Um, um, but I do think those thrillers that you're talking about, and there was a period of time when I read, um, Oh, who writes the A, a to Z uh, detective? Grafton. Sue Grafton. I read a lot of those Grafton novels. Yeah. Um, and I read a Lee Child book. And I think those have become a different kind of book, which is people, readers want to hang out with those people. So they're happy mm. to watch him make spaghetti and then beat sure. somebody up and then go home to his place. I mean, I, it's like binge watching um, where you're happy for the immersion. And they share that, I think, with fantasy novels. I read a great um, essay in Inner Zone maybe 30 years ago now, cause I'm getting old. Um, and it was, it was, uh, um, it was a sort of a regular column on analyzing why bestsellers were bestsellers. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and I think it was by the science fiction, Nick Lowe as my memory of who was writing this, not the other big Lowe, Nick Lowe. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and he was saying he was, he was, he was talking about, uh, the Thomas Covenant series. And he's like, why does everything take so long? And why is every paragraph blown out with description and stuff? And he was thinking that part of the attraction is this immersion, this kind of mm -hmm. warm bath yeah. of words. And you just get to float along in it for as long as you like. The people who love the, who love those, the people who love the, uh, the Robert Jordan novels all talk about that. They talk about simply being a wash in it. And, and it's the plot, the characters are not that much, uh, not that crucial. It's the world they want to be in. But you know what we're leaving out of the discussion now are novels which I mean, this novel uh, Moreau does depend on character, but it's not completely about character. Uh, and it's interesting to contrast it with Spoonbenders, which demanded its length because of what you needed to learn about the characters. Because without those characters at that depth for each of them. There wasn't really a novel. There's not enough fantasy in there to make it a fantasy novel. It's a it's a family <laughs> novel, to be honest. I was just trying to trick science fiction people into reading it. Yeah, right. you know? <laughs> no, but you're right. I mean, Spoonbenders was like I I knew it had to be one of those kind of flashback novels where uh, there's stuff going on in the present day, and uh, but there's stuff happening in the '60s and the '70s, and and so it would keep moving, being waffly right. about time, and yeah, that was sort of the that was sort of the point. But I uh, I don't think I'll ever be able to write a straight mainstream novel without something in it weird in it. Like I I just something some of the energy just goes out of it. If I had to write that novel, but without psychic powers, uh -huh. um, I don't know if I could do it because I wouldn't. I I would. I would be, I'd be bored and I would start making them. Um, uh, I, I just, I think I just grew up too much in where science fiction wired my brain in a certain way where I'm thinking, of course, some of that stuff's got to be happening. And I like the effects of things that you get when you have science fictional tropes. Like uh, one of the characters in Spoonbender, she can tell when somebody is telling a lie. 
Uh-huh. And I like the idea where you might not have room in a novella or in a standard science fiction novel to just talk about how that would wreck all your relationships and just go into depth about it. Well, um, what I thought was interesting. Every character uh, has a every character is distorted in some way that has to do with their power. Um, you know, you've got a character who can see the future, but only up to a point, which is very ominous. Yeah. <laughs> and they, yeah. They, and- I mean, it, that, they're trying to make that into a TV series right now, and I and I was glad it it became uh, one of the first screenwriters on it. I was, she said, you know, if we were doing this as a movie, we'd be having a really different discussion because you'd have to just cut and cut and cut and cut uh-huh. and cut. But you know, television series, especially the eight or ten episode mm-hmm. series, mm-hmm. that's that fits the size of a novel. You know, novellas fit movies pretty well. Short stories fit movies. Um, uh, but a novel could be ten episodes, and you can feel like you're getting, you know, the 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 stuff you get from a full novel. This is something I've 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 noticed. Well, Stephen King has said the same thing uh, about Lisey's story, which is his new thing that I guess he wrote the whole series. I've talked to Peter Straub. There's somebody uh, is working on the the Talisman now, which is a huge epic. And they both said the same thing that until this mini series idea came along, which goes back to the 70s now. It goes back to yeah. roots and the Holocaust and that sort of thing. But until that idea came along, the idea of actually adapting a novel to to media was was never realistic. I mean, you, I remember seeing the Russian version of War and Peace at four and a half hours and thinking, oh, they've got about half the novel in there, but I really <laughs> got to go home and go to the bathroom now. <laughs> but actually, you, know, you say that uh, the movie is a, is a good uh form for the novella if you're going to adapt but i look at moreau and it reminds me i just watched a tv show called we are lady parts which is about a british muslim punk band (laughs) right Uh, all female and it's six 25 minute episodes and it strikes me that sort of thing would then be the perfect form for something like moreau because you get to keep that structure of point of view, point of view, point of view, and work really well. Uh, but we see, it seems like there are so many ways, and it's, it's, it's almost a cliche to say, to consume story now that it's all beginning to feed into one another in ways that people who particularly who comment on, on, on it aren't that clear about. I mean, it used to be people would talk about how science fiction was a clear linear history of, you know, so-and-so wrote this, so-and-so wrote that in response to this, so-and-so wrote that in response to that. You know, Heinlein does... You know, Star, uh, does Starship Troopers, so uh, Holderman does The Forever War and so on. But now, first of all, you've got a generation, our generation, who, I mean, I never was into it particularly, but we're into gaming, the whole Steve Jackson fantasy gaming kind of thing, video gaming. So that's had an influence. You've got 30, 40 years of television that has impacted as well as. So you got something, you got a writer today and they have a whole panoply of influences that people wouldn't expect and structures that are coming to mind that aren't immediately apparent. So you get a book like Moreau, which which riffs off H.G. Wells, but just as much riffs off almost 70s cop shows or detective shows and off mm-hmm. you know, boy bands and off this and off that. Um, and it, it's an enriching thing. Let me ask you this. Uh, in that sense, how important do you think it is that things fall out of copyright and that you get to that that it gets to be used as part of the mulch of culture? Oh, it's it's absolutely vital. I, I wish it was shorter, actually, and, and this may be bad news for my descendants if anything ever you know becomes worth anything. But I mean, um, look what happened with when Gatsby 
became public domain this year. Um, yeah. Suddenly there's musicals happening. There's just more art happening. Mm-hmm. So uh, suddenly an explosion of art where people can comment on Gatsby um, and do feminist takes on it and do alternate takes on it. Um, uh, my daughter was working on a Gatsby musical for a while. Um, it, no, it's, it, you need it. And especially in science fiction, um, you can always file the serial numbers off. Um, mm. You can always make a reference and have people get it. Um, but it's awfully nice uh, to be able to reference that stuff. Now I will say that, like Gary ended his review in Locus of Moreau was saying that, that I must have, uh, what was the way you said it, Gary? Um, I have to look it up. A total, a total lack of fear of Wells's vengeful ghost. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, because you're like, I don't think this is what he intended. He was writing a serious novel protesting mm-hmm. vivisection. He wanted to horrify people, and I've turned it into a boy band. Well, but uh, in, in yeah. fairness, the science caught up with him. I mean, vivisection is not an issue anymore. Genetic modification is. So if he were around today, he might very well think, hey, Gene mods are just as bad as vivisection. Right. Yeah. Everybody's got to write in their, their milieu, milieu they're in. And, uh, and you try to find stuff that speaks to you. Like for, for me and Moreau, it was, I really wanted to honor that kind of activist impulse. So I wanted references to things uh, that were bothering me, even though we're in a ridiculous kind of premise. So I wanted to talk about immigration. Mm-hmm. I wanted mm-hmm. the point that the boys get smuggled into the country uh, as property. Right. And yeah. their status okay. as humans is in doubt, which is directly from Island of Dr. Moreau. Like, are we human or not? Tell right. me, doctor, what I am, you know, um, and, and some animals pretending to be more human than other animals. So the bonobo deliberately thinks he's more human. He, he thinks to himself, well, I'm better looking. I could be an actor. I'm more human than other people. I have more range of opportunities, mm-hmm. which is exactly uh like the ape in an island of Dr. Moreau, who's like feels superior because he's got five fingers. So right. he's, you know, um, so I wanted to, you know, you want to just, I have this religious belief that um, even if readers don't get all the references, they will somehow smell the density or they'll smell that. Uh, hmm. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say smell. So sense, perhaps. They, could, they could sense it. Uh-huh. They could sense that there's more going on and it, they're reassured by that. There's something about the fact that it feels internally consistent, even if you're not getting all the references. One of the things that occurred to me about, about that when I was reading it was, is there, uh, is there a single reader who is really into boy bands and Agatha Christie mysteries <laughs> and early HG Wells? Uh, and, and so on. And then his name is Daryl Gregory. Well, <laughs> here's, here's the thing though. Let's say the boy band. Let's say you pick up a whole bunch of boy band readers who have never heard of the island of Doctor Moreau before. Maybe they'll go back. Maybe the maybe the advantage, one of the advantages of um, of the lapse of copyright, is that you can do things which will now send people back to to the Wells novel, which actually is a pretty good novel. Um, it, 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 no, I I reread it like three times during the writing of. Um, did you look at I, any of the movies? Did you look at uh, the Island of Lost? Was it the, oh, there's the Island of Lost Souls. So Charles Lawton, yeah, is Doctor. Oh, yeah, Charles Lawton and Kathleen Burke. Yeah, and one of them, Brando was Moreau, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> a, the train wreck. The I mean, there's a, there's a there's a Lawton one. There's a Burt Lancaster one. Um, and 
I watched both of those with Jack Skilling. Said we had a theme movie night. We knew we were writing. I was writing this book. We're like, let's just watch. Let's just grab all the Moreau versions we can get. Um, and then there's the train wreck one with Marlon Brando as Moreau and Val Kilmer uh, as his uh, sidekick. Uh, and just and and it's like Val Kilmer felt like he just had to chew as much scenery as Brando. It was like they had a contest. Um, and at one point, there's a great clip where where Val Kilmer turns to Prendrick and says to him, uh, this isn't going well, is it? I'm like, nope, it's not. The entire movie <laughs> is pretty much over. Um, so there's not many, I mean, now that we got into the state of CGI, I mean, we could have a really good Moreau, I think. I think the, I think it's ripe. And I think you would have to go to genetic engineering. I'm a big Planet of the Apes fan. And it's telling to me that when they rebooted Planet of the Apes, the thing that we're afraid of now is genetic engineering and plagues and viruses. Um, the nuclear war stuff wasn't resonating, even though we have as many nukes as we did right. when they filmed the 70s movies. Um, it's like, no, what scares you now? And so that's the way that's, that's going to go. Yeah. It, also, it, it doesn't okay. make much difference. I mean, if you, if you go back to the ending of the original Planet of the Apes, and clearly there's a reference to nuclear destruction, you can – you could practically redub three or four lines of dialogue and just make it an environmental catastrophe and it'd be the same movie. Uh, in other words, the point right. is the catastrophe, not what caused it, really. Right. I mean, the whole point of catastrophe books is, is, is the fantasy of the reset. Like, you know, like what is a science fictional way we can just reset society and see what the rules and run the rules again and see what would happen? Um, it's why zombie novels are popular. It's like, wouldn't it be nice if we just had to reset back to some primitive us versus them thing. And we wouldn't have any guilt because we could just kill people right. uh, uh, because they're monsters. Uh, it's, the lure of that is really strong. How important do you think it is that a story has the kind of structural integrity that when you get to the end of it, it ends? You and I have talked about possible sequels to uh, the album of Dr. Moreau, and I can see how they work. But when I think about Moreau itself, it is a sealed bubble universe of itself. It is the moment of intensity in the story and almost potentially anything you do after that weakens that. Yeah. No, I, I by nature am, am a, a one shot kind of novelist. I mean, I joke that, you know, one thing is that if you write a novel and uh, nobody asks for a sequel, don't write the sequel. Um, <laughs> I've, I've <laughs> um <laughs> But I, my tendency is to do that novelistic shape, and I'm having to learn different ways. I had to learn a different way of doing that with comics, where it had to extend for any number of months. I had to plot differently. I had to channel my inner Dickens just to keep events happening. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, and um, but I like the structure. I like I like rhyming. I like the I like when the ending calls forth the beginning. You know what John Gardner says. You know the ending should ring chimes that ring all the way back to the beginning to the first page. So yeah. it was important for me to have that framing device, that old school yeah, framing that device, cool. just like in Moreau, uh, the original Moreau. Like I like that kind of stuff. I like that completeness. I just thought uh, of something. Also, because I kind of feel like yeah. one, one thing that happens is when people try to do create sequels or whatever else, they the material isn't isn't necessarily right for it. I mean, I've thought about it. If you're to do another Las Vegas murder mystery with uh, Luis Del Delgado. How many supernatural, strange, scientific things happen in Las Vegas every week? I mean, seriously, really, 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 how many, right? 
Didn't you ever and see like, the Night Stalker TV series? Yes, I did. Every week, but that was nonsense. But hang on. But also, and then I also Wait, think. Have you ever gone to Cabot Cove? I mean, yeah. Murder She Wrote, they were killing people right and left. That whole neighborhood was emptied right. out by the end of the series. And similarly, like you bring the Wild Boys to it, let's call it, without giving away anything, a point of pause in their story, right? That would be a mm-hmm. fair thing to say. And then there's another story arc that exists in there that people will find when they read. But it seems to me that sort of that ending is what gives it value. Yes. No, yeah. I think that the sequel um, would take on a different Wells novel um, and may not involve Luz Delgado at all, but yeah. um, I don't know. Well, so see, I have that ideas. Touches, yeah. That touches on something else as well, because we were talking about copyright a minute ago. Uh, do you think that the, that the extended period of copyright has, in, up to a point, falsely created a focus on a group of creators that exist before the period of copyright? or the, the expiry. So for example, for the last 10 years, we've seen Lovecraft, Lovecraft, Lovecraft. And if you look at the history right. of contemporary science fiction and fantasy and horror, at that time, he was the thing. And we're yet to get into the time when a lot of stuff, which the rest of the field is interested in, became popular and well-known. So, I mean, and I, in my own experience, I worked with uh, Kids Johnson on a Lovecraft adaptation that went on to win the world fantasy award right yeah, uh, love that book. The, the dream quest of velvet bow and the plan was to do more velvet bow stories and it still may happen but you're looking around for not lovecraft type franchises or, or or worlds that you could go into and one of the obvious ones seemed to be lankmar right but you can't go into lankmar because it's copyright copyright stifles that kind of thing and i do yeah, wonder I think that's a- sorting yeah no, I think there's a there's a fine line between you want to compensate writers, you want you want to reward them because you're not getting any health insurance. So you you know yeah, sure, you, yeah. the long term royalties are maybe what you're living on uh, later in life. So you don't want to cut it off within a lifetime of a, of a writer. Um, but how long do their descendants need to have it? You know, not as long as it seems to be. What are we up to now? Seventy five. I think so that's only seventy years after death of the creator. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that uh, I mean, Lovecraft, the Lovecraft rebuild began uh, before, obviously, before anything was copyright. Yeah. And Wells has been out of copyright for some time, and uh, and certainly people have been doing Dickens for years and years uh, out of copyright. So I, I don't think that really going out of copyright is a necessary prerequisite for uh, for revisiting these works. I mean, there are other so, issues that are complicated now, like. Uh, sometimes somebody buys a property and owns the characters. There's a TV series on in the States now called Clarice, which is supposedly based on Silence of the Lambs, but they can't mention, apparently, Hannibal Lecter because another studio owns the rights to Hannibal Lecter, the character. <laughs> well, well, on that then, how what impact do you think it would have been if you changed the title of this book and simply left it at that and don't reference Moreau at all? Because, I mean, this is not Moreau fan fiction. Not that that's a, anything wrong with that, but that's not what it is. Uh, it would be a crime. Yeah, to rip off Moreau and not acknowledge it is really... <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and also, the, the type, so my experience with titles, I either have them and I have them locked in or I never have them, right? Yeah. So early on, Jonathan said to me, um, I like this story. But do we have to call it Album of Dr. Moreau? And I said, that's the one thing I'm dead sure about. I will fight you on this one. Because um, I just love the resonance of it. It sounded sure. like Island of Dr. Moreau. It the sounded funny exactly to me. exactly the same, yeah. Yeah. So um, 
I no, I really wanted the reference to it. And you could. I mean, there are people who've written King Kong pastiches that don't reference King Kong yeah. or mm-hmm. change his name. Um, there's lots of ways around this, but if you can, I mean, why not? I and sure. my thing is that it's secretly a sequel. Um, yeah. And I think the other thing is you want to send readers who may not know about Dr. Moreau to, to be able to find the novel fairly easily. Yeah. And like when I was, I, so I hopped on the Lovecraft train with Harrison squared Yeah, and my, uh, so it's a young adult Lovecraftian adventure. And my goal was to have a kid read it and then, um, later read Lovecraft and think that they were ripping off Daryl Gregory. Like that, <laughs> that, that, that HP is like, wow, he's just stealing. Um, uh, yeah, you want to, you want to send people back and also, but the part of the fun of being in a field like science fiction is the dialogue is the fun part. I mean, that, that's the, that's the whole game really as well. Yeah. It is for me. I like, yeah. um, early on, you know, when I first started going to cons, I ran into Jonathan, he will not remember this rally, but he sat down in the book. He's we were, I was sitting around the lobby and he sat down and he's like, can we talk? I'm like, Oh, but Jonathan Strom wants to talk to me. So like, of course. And then, um, we started talking and Jonathan, you were talking about how, you know, originality is not really the game. I mean, there's only so many original ideas. We were talking about how it's about execution and angle of attack. Well, what, what I call what I later started calling angle of attack, which is there's a, there's a story thing cloud and you've got to get through it somehow. And the, the direction that you pick it from, for, you know, you tell it from the point of view of a side character or you tell it backwards or, you know, that's the, you know, where you can shed, say something different about the the story. Um, that's kind of the game because there just aren't that many drop dead original ideas where you think mm-hmm. this is nobody's ever thought of this before. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, I mean, well, that's, look, that's where the combination, that's where the recombination comes in. That's the yeah. moral and boy, but boy. Oh, it just occurred to me after you were mentioning that Val Kilmer was in the Island of Doctor, and Val Kilmer was also Jim Morrison in The Doors. That's the first link between boy bands and Dr. Moreau. Right. <laughs> now, now According to the doors of boy band might be well, it's a, It was a boy band of its age. They were, what, 21 or something? I mean, they were young. Uh, well, I, uh, they're now the, maybe that will be part of the sequel, the, 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 some sort of yeah, doors, doors of perception, <laughs> something. I, it, yeah, there's, there's something there. I definitely want to do something else with – well, there's so many great – takes on wells on war of the worlds on the you know the time machine um uh, well you the, know the latest the, yeah uh, the, the, i don't think the invisible man has been done well since the original film actually i think people have taken it in bizarrely have you seen the have you seen the latest the film, la- though? yeah and it's it has nothing to do with walls whatsoever no it doesn't <laughs> it, just, <laughs> it just basically takes the title and turns it into a a not very good horror well, movie in which the, the okay, the, I, 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 I was not fond of this movie, so I, I probably shouldn't go on. Lay it on me. No, let's do it. I mean, the, 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 the big, the big shocking horror scene is pouring paint over an invisible guy so you can see him. I mean, that's not very <laughs> shocking and not very frightening. And... But the, here's what I would say that they share that with the novel is this kind of idea that being invisible is sort of a corrupting influence. And, you yeah. know, there's that weird idea in Wells that somehow this is also going to turn you crazy. Um, and they do the same thing. They did the, It's not very believable in any of them because I have trouble with people who just 
turn crazy. Um, but the same thing happened in the Kevin Bacon Invisible Man yeah. version. He just went crazy from being able to be invisible. Now yeah. I could, I, I don't think it would be good for my personality to be able to turn invisible. Um, <laughs> I don't trust myself with that ability, but uh, I don't think I would turn that evil, like su- like homicidal. Evolution. I don't know how we no. get off on this. Although the, the, the <laughs> Wells Wells was picking up on the archetype of the mad scientist, which goes back to you know Mary Shelley. But the food of the gods, which is underdone, it's one of the uh, Wells novels that I think there was one British film of it, maybe thirty or forty years ago. And again, it has to do with with, with uh, there's a story called the New Accelerator, which is terrific, which is about somebody really? who just uh, somebody who invents a drug which makes him super fast. So in, in effect, he's invisible. He's like the Flash. It's like an 1890-some version of the Flash. I've never heard of this story. It, look it up in any collection of Wells stories. It's called The New Accelerator. It's terrific. There you go. Yeah. Well, you know what we should do before we wind up, because we're getting towards the end of our hours, we should maybe take a moment to let you tell us a little bit about the novel that is coming out in August. I know we're talking about Moreau, because that's out now, and that's what people should pay attention to. But you have this other book, which presumably you've finished and are done with. Yep. What's it's it? Lovely. What is it? Uh, um, so it's uh, it's uh, yeah, it's called Revelator, and it's uh, Appalachian horror um, set in the 30s and 40s. So my as 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 Gary knows from reading uh, Devil's Alphabet, uh, my people come out of East Tennessee, mm-hmm. uh, specifically yeah. a pair a part of the uh, uh, country called Cades Cove, which all of my relatives were kicked out to make it into a <laughs> national park when they made the Smoky Mountain National Park. Okay. Uh, and they basically eminent domained them out of there um, and paid them off and sent them on their way. And, um, but um, all my, uh, my relatives, uh, my ancestors, the gravestones are still there. Uh, cabins are still there. Uh, the churches they went to are still there. So I've been going and back and visiting this place my whole life. Um, so I wanted to write about that period when people were getting kicked out of the cove. And all my people also are moonshiners. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. they were, they, they, there's a thing we're saying the Gregories were either uh, preachers or moonshiners. There was the whiskey Gregories and there was the preaching Gregories. <laughs> and that was it. Um, and they probably overlapped some. Um, <laughs> and my uncle is a moonshiner. Like he was arrested and still kept a still running for a long time. Uh, in fact, I think he still got a still running because when I visited him last year, he had still hooch that he'd made and we were tasting. So uh, he's got something going on somewhere. He's, um, a, he's in East Tennessee, right? Way up in the yeah, beginning of the East Smokies. Tennessee. Yeah. Right in the edge of the Smokies there is where all my people come from. Yeah. I, 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 Both I, sides I, of my family. Yeah. No, I, I think you and I must have talked about this at some point, but I actually, the one time I met a moonshiner because my brother, who was a country music scholar, drove me up into Eastern Tennessee to meet a guy named Hamper McBee. I still remember <laughs> And there's actually a PBS show about him, but he he's exactly the same thing you're talking about. He showed us how to how to build your stills so that you could take it down in 30 seconds, because if you're looking down on the switchback road, you can see that the federal agents are if when they when they become visible at that crossroads, you've got 45 seconds to take your still down. (laughs) And I thought this guy, this is a science. These guys are scientists. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I really get into the science of it. I love the, I love all the intricacies of it. Um, but the root of the novel really is about um, a, a young girl is brought back to her. Um, she'd grown up in Chicago. She's brought back as a ten-year-old um, to her family's farm in Cades Cove, and uh, she's designated as the revelator, the person who's supposed to uh-huh. commune with the family's own private god that they keep in the hills. 
and she's sent into the cave to talk to it and bring back revelations and she communes with it and it's a it gradually destroys her life and it and it seems to have wrecked her, the women who have come before her too so there's that one storyline going on in the 30s and then 10 years later there's stella as a grown woman and a moonshiner but she's brought back into the cove to sort of stop the next girl from being uh the servant of the God and, and either end that religion or end the rest of them. So it's, so there's no, so boy it's, band. It's, there's no boy band. There's a, some music, um, some but music it's, helps. yeah, for people who love Moreau, you'll hate this novel. <laughs> so, so it's a, a trademark Daryl Gregory move then. Uh, but <laughs> it, it, this sounds like a religion that has real gods and real dangers and real forces behind it. So it's, 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 yeah, it's, I was really interested in the idea of like, you know, if you like she says, the young Stella says, you know, my God is a living God, which is, you know, a, a verse straight out of the Bible. But what if you could actually just point to it? What if it's physically real? Um, how and and to be chosen by a God mm-hmm. um, as like my experience growing up evangelical, like it was it, it's very um a seductive makes it sound worse than it is, but it, it is like a seduction to feel like you're one of the chosen, to feel like you're being swept up in this thing that 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 not only is God personally interested in you and Jesus has personally saved you, uh, but now you have a mission and you have to go save everybody else. Uh-huh. And when you're a young person, it's 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 thrilling. Um, and I like this idea of of course a ten year old would be. Uh, would be swept up in this. Everybody treats her like, you know, the chosen one in a way. And, and what does that do to a person? And the God has its own reasons for doing what it's doing that eventually get revealed. But the core of it is that progression in religion between when you go from, uh, you know, from awe to devotion to finally either rejection or acceptance. Mm -hmm. So, um, you have to choose at some point in your life. Are you in or are you out? Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's about that. Okay. Well, Revelator is out from Knopf in August, I think. Yeah. And the album of Dr. Moreau is out from tour.com right now. People can go buy it, order it, read it, own it, probably listen to it, maybe, possibly, maybe even dance to it if they go looking for it. The but- one thing I wish we'd done, Jonathan, is, is we'd had a, a, a DVD extra with the music on it. That'll that would be the next something. version we do. I think that's true. Maybe maybe the the, the, the deluxe super limited edition will will we'll have will come with a with with the ten track CD that that's gone missing. Yes, that would that's be it. perfect. But, meanwhile, but we for now, wait, we can wait for the various readers of the book to put up their YouTube and TikTok. We'll outsource this whole thing. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's what we need. We need an we need a album of Doctor Moreau TikTok. And so, and so, but on that note, we can't do thank you very time. much, Daryl, for making time to talk to us. Uh, thanks so much, you guys. This is this is a lot of fun. It's always fun. And until next time, then, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. <laughs>